0: Let's play a little bit of presidential trivia this morning. See how good y'all are. He was the 20th president of the United States. (laughs) He worked hard against corruption and for civil rights. No, I ain't no. He was shot while in office. John F. Kennedy. Eh. <laughs> and... <laughs> what'd, what'd you say, David? Garfield. Garfield. James Garfield. He was shot in office. And he died in office. The reason you may not remember who he was is because he died only 200 days into His first presidential term was a term that was filled with much hope, matching its young office holder who was bright and bold and in stature and status and in reputation stood head and shoulders above most in society. Until he was struck down by a psychotic madman, Charles Guiteau who after being denied an office in Garfield's government set his sights on killing him, believing it would bring governmental change, a new regime in which he'd be prominently rewarded with a prominent position for his heroic act of assassinating the president. And so on July 2nd, 1881, Guiteau met Garfield at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in Washington, D.C and shot the president once in the back and once in the arm. The deranged man's actions did their damage, leaving Garfield in severe pain and suffering. But it wasn't bullets from Guiteau's gun that killed Garfield. He died two months later from infection, the result of countless unsanitary methods to remove the bullet from the president's back by many well-meaning doctors who'd come near to the president's side to aid him in his greatest time of need. It makes a striking historical point that sometimes those you expect to bring the greatest help end up causing even greater hurt. Is what we see in our passage this morning in the book of Job So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Job This morning, if one hasn't already scared you off We're going to venture so much as to try to cover Job chapter 4 All the way to Job chapter 14 if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Job Chapter 4 on page 418. As we cover this morning, why we're taking such a big chunk is that you'll see the the book of Job after the first three chapters is broken up in in the middle between these three cycles of speeches between Job and his three friends. So 4 through 14, then 15 through 21 is the second cycle, and then 22 through 26 or 27 is the third cycle. So we're going to cover 4 through 14 This morning, and you want to keep your Bibles open because we're not going to read all 11 chapters, so we'll do a lot of flipping. To catch you up, the first two chapters of Job have introduced us to this godly, blameless man named Job. He had many possessions, he had a flourishing family of 10 children, and he had much respect from all the people of the land. He was called the greatest man in all the East. Even more, God himself esteemed Job as a faithful and dedicated servant. But Satan claimed that Job only faithfully served God because God so richly blessed Job. And so if God removed all Job's stuff, then Job would curse God. So chapter one, God allowed Satan to work and to have all of Job's possessions to be taken and all ten of his children to be killed. And yet Job still praised God in chapter 2 God allowed Job's very body to be touched and put through severe pain and agony and yet at the end of chapter 2 Job still praised God At the end of chapter 2 Job's friends Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar came to comfort him But upon seeing him all they could do is sit with him in silence They were shocked by the sudden and steep demise of their friend and they had nothing to say. So in chapter 3 where we were last week Job breaks the silence bursting out in agony and cursing the day of his birth wishing he'd never been born and wishing that God would take his life now and end all his suffering. That's what we pick up this morning right after Job's agonizing lament in Job 3. After Job has spoken and broken the silence, now his friends open their mouths and they break the silence. But after they speak, Job wishes they have kept their silence. And we'll see why. So here's what I think is the main idea of Job chapters 4 through 14 of this whole big section of scripture this morning bad doctrine misrepresented as truth and good doctrine misapplied both bring misery to sufferers. Bad doctrine misrepresented as truth, bad doctrine that's misrepresented as truth and good doctrine that's misapplied both Bring more misery to sufferers. As we walk through these chapters together, we'll focus on three lessons we learned in this kind of first round of interactions between Job and his three friends. Three points to the sermon this morning, that we lessons we learned. Number one, we learned piously preaching at people in pain provides zero comforts. Piously preaching at people in pain provides zero comfort. We see that in chapters four through seven. Number two, we see requiring repentance can be the wrong remedy. We see that in verses eight through 10, chapters eight through 10. Requiring repentance can be the wrong remedy. And third, we see that arrogant assumptions only deserve rebuke They don't deliver rest. We see that in chapters 11 through 14. Number one, piously preaching at people in pain provides zero comfort. does not give any comfort. Second lesson, requiring repentance can be the wrong remedy. And third, arrogant assumptions only deserve rebuke. They don't deliver any rest. How y'all doing on on on, uh, on AC on temperature? Everybody good? I see some a little bit. Turn t- t- turn it up. Is too too much? Turn it up. I rather want to just turn that up a little bit so that we. I see some shivering going on. All right. Now I heard that man like listen. We'll try to. I'll try to keep a keep a watch on some eyes and some some feelings in a room. Keep everybody awake. That's right. That's right. Or sleep. Uh, number one First lesson we learned Piously preaching at people in pain Provides zero comfort Job's friend Eliphaz is the first to start things off In this series of back and forth speeches and he begins on a more polite A more gentle note than his counterparts That are to follow Let's just look there at chapter 4 Starting in verse 1 We read, then after Job just poured out his bitter lament in chapter 3, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now, It has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Eliphaz feels compelled to speak after what Job has just said. I mean, who can keep from speaking after such seemingly impious words? And he begins... By acknowledging Job's pious past, how he has so sincerely and selflessly helped other sufferers in previous times. Job, he, he, he expresses, you've told other sufferers in times past to, to hold on and to trust in the Lord in the midst of trials. You've instructed them to persevere through pain. But now, he says in, in verse 5, Suffering has come to you and you are impatient. You are dismayed. It's kind of a gentle rebuke. Bro, don't be like that. Take the counsel that you've counseled others with. And verse six, let your fear of God and your integrity serve as grounds for the future to have hope. I mean, after all, Job, we know that godly people get good things from God. And so you can be assured if you are a godly man that God will soon deliver you from all of this. To to further bolster Job's confidence, Eliphaz points to what he claims is a universal truth in verse seven, that no one who was ever innocent or blameless ever perished. The upright don't get forever cut off By God And then Eliphaz appeals To personal experience in verse 8 As I've seen Or in all my years Those who plow iniquity And sow trouble Reap the same Now things almost Always go wrong When you start appealing To personal experience to help other people In their pain It automatically narrows things down to your limited viewpoint And applies your limited experience broadly to everyone's problems Your experiences begin to dictate and define the norms And the norm for Eliphaz, The sentiment we'll see shared again and again by his friends is You reap what you sow If you put in work And live a good life You get good rewards back If you live a bad life Then you Get bad punishment As simple as that And Eliphaz seems right I mean even the apostle Paul Later in the New Testament Echoes in Galatians chapter 6 Verse 7 You reap What you sow Hmm. But if Eliphaz only widened the lenses of life beyond his personal picture, he'd see that that's not always the case, at least not in this life. You can live a bad life and seemingly be rewarded. And you can live a good life and be wrecked. I mean, the third man who ever lived, Abel, seemingly lived a good, God-fearing life. And where did it lead him? To be killed by his own brother. That's right. He sowed a life of godliness and he reaped death. The problem is with Eliphaz's perspective. Yes, people reap what they sow, they are rewarded or punished based on how they live, but it doesn't always play out in this life, but in the next life. The afterlife, a life the Bible says really exists where there'll be real rewards, praise God, Amen. and real punishments for going against God. Eliphaz misapplies the certain rewards and judgments to come in another age. He applies them wrongly to this age. He tries to offer hope. But it's a false hope because it's based on a faulty premise That the good get good in this life And the bad get bad in this life That's of no help to Job And it doesn't apply to his situation And it's not true Alifaz continues to decline in thought In verses 12 through 17 He's already appealed to personal experience Now he appeals to personal revelation Look at verse 12. Eliphaz says, Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. He goes on to describe an eerie situation where a spirit came to him by night and, and gave him a word. And that word, was verse 17, asked him, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Eliphaz claims some kind of secret knowledge. You know, the kind people claim to have when they pull you to the side and say, God told me to tell you. They must be real religious to have heard directly from God. They need no intercessor. They need no scriptures. God speaks to them eerily at night. God supposedly brought to Eliphaz's mind this crucial question. Can a mere mortal, a mere man be right in the eyes of God? And the implied answer is no. And so the implied accusation is that Job, a mere man, is not right before God. There's some kind of impurity in his heart, in his life, that is the cause of all the chaos that has come upon him. I mean, the other goes on to say in verse 18 that even Angels are charged with error before the holy Lord of all the earth. How much more than Job? He echoes the same sentiment at the start of chapter 5. Asking for Job to call out and see if someone would answer on Job's behalf and prove his blamelessness or bridge the gap between him and a holy God. There is not such a one president, Eliphaz claims, because Job is not blameless. He says in, in chapter 5, verse 6, affliction doesn't come from the dust. Right? Trouble don't just run up from the ground. In other words, this affliction, this suffering it come from nowhere, Job. It sprang up because of something. And let's be honest Job We all know what that something is Your sin Remember No one ever innocent Perished You reap what you sow Job there are no exceptions Eliphaz moves from personal experiences To personal revelation That demonstrate his Supposed piety To now offering personal advice Amen. It's a bad verse interesting he says in verse 8 ask for me if I were you O Joe I would seek God and to God would I commit my cause I mean that's the pious the religious the spiritual thing to do to say isn't it to, to go to God and that's what I would do in your shoes but it's interesting. That's not what Eliphaz nor any of Job's friends do in this book. Even though they're not in Job's shoes. Eliphaz never seeks God on behalf of his friend Job. He never commits Job's cause to the Lord. You know, there may be times when people are suffering so severely, so greatly, that they themselves find it hard to pray. They themselves don't find, can't find the resources in themselves to to conjure up a simple prayer. In such cases, it's imperative that godly friends, that church members step in and intercede for them. Pray for them, pray with them. But you don't see that here or anywhere in the book. There's no desperate praying for Job or with Job by his friends. There's just pious posturing, demanding that he pray. And if Job did pray, as Adaphas claims he should, and as fast claims that he would, were he in Job's place, he would find a God who does great things. I mean, just listen there. Look there, verses 9 to 11. This God does great things and unsearchable things, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the field. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. (laughs) I drop down to verses 17 through 27 and you see more of Eliphaz's pious speech as he instructs Job in verse 17, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, Job, don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. Again, the presumption is that Job has done something wrong that's garnered the discipline of God. But Job need not despise it for just a moment. If he would but patiently submit and stop bucking against God's loving discipline with all the wild talk that he's just saying in chapter three, then Job would be restored. Look at verses 18 and on through the end of the chapter. It reads like a promise-filled sermon, doesn't it? One way you could just you can just hear the organ playing mm. and the preacher going off with the congregation responding affirmatively uh, to every phrase as the preacher closes. Mm. Mm. Eliphaz says in talking about God's discipline that He He wounds, yeah. but He binds up. Amen. He shatters, but His hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles, yea, in seven no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. Drop down to verse 24. You shall know that your tent is at peace and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in old age, ripe old age like a sheep gathered up in a season. Behold this, we the wise have searched out and it is true. Hear it and know it for your good. Sounds wonderful. But it doesn't fit the setting, the situation. It doesn't fit Job's situation. It's actually pretty thoughtless, actually. I mean, consider these beautiful poetic promises that Job's tent shall be at peace. He'll inspect his his fold, his his flocks, and and nothing would be missing. His offspring shall be many, that he'll go to his grave, ripe, healthy, in old age. But as Job inspects his flocks, Mm. he finds nothing remaining, everything has been taken. And all his offspring, they're none. They're not many offspring. There aren't any offspring. And his body is not vigorous and white. It's ruined. As Job is scraping his painful boils with pottery and sitting in ashes, Eliphaz has set up a little pulpit in his presence and sermonized the sufferer. He's preached at him. Perhaps. Feeling good about his polished presentation, but what effect has it actually had on Job? It's probably walking around like Man. good words I just gave that once. <laughs> but what did it accomplish? What did it do for Job? Absolutely nothing. As chapter six opens up, Job answers allowing us in on his pain. He says in verse 2 of chapter 6, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. Job's friends, and maybe many of us as Some of you shared last week, are alarmed at the raw words said in chapter three by Job. And the quick response to him is correction. Reproof, Job, you need to be more religious in how you think and how you talk. But Job says in essence here at the opening of chapter six, I wish my friends could understand the great weight of all that I'm going through. I wish all the grief and all the sorrow I feel could be put on a scale. The scale would break. If you gathered all the sand from all the banks of the sea, it would not outweigh all my sorrow. Out of this great sorrow, Job acknowledges that his words have been rash. They have been raw. He hasn't had the time or the ability to to carefully construct every word so as to satisfy religious folks' sensibilities. He couldn't preach the eloquent sermon that Eliphaz just gave. All he could do was express what he was feeling. Job isn't out to make excuses for his feelings and words. Job is out to get some empathy from his friends. If my words sound bitter, consider how much more bitter the soul that they spring from. God Himself has put His arrows in me. God Himself is afflicting me. So Job goes on in verses 8 through 13 to ask that He could have His request of dying so that He could be comforted, so that He could be relieved of all His agony. Well, look at verse 10. Job says this Death would be my comfort I would Even be able to exult In the pain unsparing That I currently feel if I knew That death was close by But look at the Reason Job ultimately gives in verse 10 for why a certain soon Death would be a comfort For I have not denied The words of the holy one You see Most of us having read Job's dark words and worldview in chapter three and reading here of his desire to die, we assume he's turning away from God. He's denying the God who gave him life by wanting to die. But Job says the total opposite. My pain is so severe, my agony is so unbearable that I want to die soon so that I don't end up sinning and denying God in all my suffering. Joe's mind, even in all his misery, is on continuing to trust God in this tragedy. He just doesn't know how much longer he can do it before he breaks, before he sins. And so he asks, Lord, take me home before I get there. He doesn't have unending strength to patiently endure forever. And one of the main gifts from God intended to strengthen and to to encourage us when we are weak and when we are suffering, friends, when they're all failing, Job. Look at verse 14. Job says they withheld kindness, which is what friends are supposed to offer. In verse 15, Job says, instead they are treacherous. Unfaithful, failing—he com- compares them there to streams that that should offer streams of water that should offer offer weary caravans of travelers hope of refreshments. But instead, what those streams deliver is disappointment and death. As those travelers reach the streams and find that they are completely dry, and so the travelers. Perish. That's how Job's friends have been to him. He had so much hope upon their arrival that they would offer streams of refreshment and encouragement and comfort. My boys are here. But all they have is biting criticism and inapplicable religious rhetoric that gives no refreshment for Job's weary soul. Look at verse 21. And Job says his friends have become nothing. No source of good at all. They have seen his calamity and are afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of what real friendship might require. They look at Job's great suffering and pull back thinking it will have some great demands upon them that Job might ask them for a gift, in verse 22, or money, or some extreme sacrifice to match his extreme form of suffering. This is very telling, isn't it? Not just as it relates to Job's friends, but because it shines a light on why we sometimes pull back from people in painful situations. We look at the great suffering that they're going through, the great trials they're enduring, and though we might have some sympathy, we stay at a distance, only going so far as offering some scriptures to read or some instructions to follow. Go pray more, read more, fast more. God will deliver you. You know, the the kind of mambo-jambo that Eliphaz throws at. When we look at someone with a deep trial, instead of entering that trial with them, we weigh the options and consider how much time it will require of us. I got my own problems, we say. I don't have time to enter nobody else's problems. If we were honest, many of us, perhaps all of us, have done this kind of calculus as it relates to people's problems. I wonder here, how Job's words might reframe how we think of friendship. Mm. Might reframe how we think of relationships. Might reframe how we think of church membership. Mm. What all those things require? It requires some loss and some cost because love is always costly. Mm. Fairweather friends can give plenty of advice. Fair-weather friends can throw out some solutions and some scriptures even. But faithful friends come near to their friends in suffering and sorrow, not worrying and weighing all of the cost up front and then making decisions to step in, if it's feasible, but stepping in and carrying their friends' burdens with them. I mean, as Christians, that's the kind of love that ought to mark all of us. Because Jesus Christ our Savior Demonstrated that kind of love to us He knew how desperate our situation was How painful our predicament was Even if we didn't feel the full weight of it, He saw that we were suffering And being swaddled up by sin And he knew very well The full cost of what it would take to help us It would take his very own life And yet, Jesus did not consider the great cost. Jesus considered our great need, and he came near to us. He dwelt among us. He died for us in order to save us. We are also then to love one another as Christ has loved us. Is that the kind of friendship you exhibit? Is that the kind of friendship you exhibit to your spouse? When you see them sorrowful or suffering, do you pull back or do you press in? Do you as a husband feel, I've got to worry about these finances and providing and this stressful job. I don't have time or resources to step in and worry about my wife's problems too. Do you as a wife feel like I've, gotta worry about these kids and fixing food and schedules and thinking about all the little details that no one else in the house or the family does, I don't have time to step in and see why my husband might be worried or wearied. Do you as a family think that we've got so much going on trying to keep up with our children's issues and their struggles, uh, trying to figure out and fix our marital problems that we don't have time to think about the singles in church who might be suffering? I mean, they might want a place to stay if I ask them if they're struggling, living single. Trying to put myself out there like that. We often think it's going to cost me something if I come too close. And so we stay away. Real friends, not fake friends, real friends don't just throw out flimsy advice. They fearlessly forge ahead wanting to be in proximity to those in pain. Not just physically, but emotionally to help them and to comfort them. And what you find is that the fears of what people might demand from you if you enter into their pain are often unfounded. They don't ultimately want or need your money or your resources or your house for a few weeks or a few months. They most need your presence and your love. They need a friend. That's what Job needed. He needed his friends to enter his pain with them. He wasn't demanding anything else from them. But they failed. They wanted to reprove Job with their upright words. But Job says in verse 25, what are you reproving me for? I've done nothing wrong to deserve my suffering. He pleads with them in verse 28 to, to look at me. Come near me, really, and believe me. I'm not lying. Come look at my face. Come, come come, enter into it with me. Believe your friend. Job has found his friends to be near physically, but of no help. And so where does he turn? To God. In chapter seven, basically what we have is one long prayer by Job. In verses one through six, Job recounts his agony and look at verse 3, he says he endures months of emptiness and nights of misery. It's been ongoing. And in verse 5, he reveals that his flesh is covered with worms and dirt, that infections and open sores come, and they close up, and they harden, and they burst open again day after day, month after month. And so what does Job do? In verse 7, he, he asks God to remember that his life is but a breath. a so vapor is short. Remember me, pay attention to me, or else my life will just pass away and be gone. God, y'all, happen now? See people uh, fanning a little bit. He just turned dead. I'm think about the die too. <laughs> Help us suffer out, man. Uh, one commentator notes how ironic Job's words are here, asking God to, to take notice of him. Because just a few verses later, in verse 16 of chapter 7, he asked God to leave him alone. Right? Which one is it? Job, do you want God to pay attention to you or leave you alone? That commentator notes, Job doesn't really know what to ask. That's a major part of his torment. Right? Expecting people in deep suffering to have it all together all the time is as asking too much. Right? That mind and those emotions are all over the place, right? And sometimes they're closer to what they should be and sometimes further away, but sometimes you just got to let them bit and be sorrowful and tell you what's going on. Notice, however, even though Job doesn't know exactly what to ask, what days, he's feeling different things, different days, notice it doesn't stop Job from asking. It doesn't stop Job from pleading. He might not know exactly what to say, but he keeps saying something. He keeps talking to God. Look at chapter 7, verse 11. Job says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my soul. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul, not to men, they ain't helping me at all, but to God. And so while old religious sounding Eliphaz postured that if I were you, I would seek God, that's what Job is actually doing. Don't tell me what you would do Job says let me tell you and show you what I am doing And so again you notice author throughout this book with all their advice The friends are never praying And Job is constantly praying He's constantly seeking God Even if his language sounds impious To old pious Eliphaz To pious us Job shows that real piety That real religion Is one that runs to God In our pain. And that openly expresses it And Job again Does that here with a realness And a rawness He says in verse 16 that he loathes life He wishes God would just Leave him alone for his presence seems Terrible And then he goes on to ask more questions of God Chapter 7 verse 19 How long will you not look away from me Verse 20 If I sin what do I do to you in other words, what sin is there that I've committed that has warranted you treating me like this? In Job's mind, there's no unrepented of sin. Lord, tell me, right? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden? Why, if there is sin, have you not pardoned it? But Job trusts that he has confessed all kinds of sin that he has committed and that God should pardon him from his sin, Right? God, you can't continue to, to judge me over and over for since I've already confessed and been forgiven of. Eliphaz has preached at Job in his pain, but his words brought no comfort. Because often, times of pain, in times of pain, what we need is not neat, organized, polished, religious-sounding counsel. What we need is intense wrestling with God showing a real religion, a real faith that asks questions in search for truth. The first lesson we learned that piously preaching at people in pain provides zero comfort. These points get shorter and shorter, by the way, okay? Second lesson we learned in this passage is that requiring repentance can be the wrong remedy. Requiring repentance, number two, can be the wrong remedy, In chapter 8, we hear from a second friend, Bildad, the Shuite, And we see in his words, more frustration, more exasperation, more fierceness towards Job than Eliphaz displayed. In chapter 8, verse 2, Bildad jumps in and asks, how long will you talk and your words be a great wind? In other words, you're nothing but a windbag blowing hot air. Your words, Job, are empty. We don't believe you when you claim you've done nothing. I mean, God doesn't pervert justice, Bildad said. He doesn't judge or punish those who are righteous and have done rightly. And then in some of the most amazingly and directly harsh and unsympathetic words a supposed friend could offer, look at what Bildad says in verse 4. If your children have sinned against God, he's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Sin equals death, Joe. Get over it. Your kids got what they deserved. Now it's absolutely true that sin does lead to death. And because all have sinned, all die. But every death, is not the direct result of sin. And we, the readers, know, in this case, the death of Job's children is not the direct result of their sin. God allowed their deaths as a test of Job's devotion to him, not as some discipline for a transgression they'd done or Job had done. Bildad doesn't know this, but even without that knowledge, he should not say words like this. We got to train ourselves not to be treacherous with our words. You know, it it can be some, some crazy things that go on in our streets that are actually the result of sin. But you don't go to a grieving mom and say your son was a thug. He deserved to get killed. That ain't the time for that. You go to a grieving mom and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I can't imagine what you're going through. Every life is precious. I will pray for you and be with you." You see, if the only gauge, only gear you have is to go straight to doctrine and make these straight line arguments and have no concern but only biting instruction for people, then you are not modeling the heart of the Lord. God, we're told, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's never happy when anyone is harmed or dies. Yes, in this providential plan he does Bring people to death for their sins. But God never delights in it. So it's very strange and very sinful when we might. People there might say what well, many of them they say to justify their harsh and sharp language. Look, I'm just being biblical. I'm just telling the truth and look, sometimes the truth hurts. But that doesn't have access to the whole truth. And even if he did, he'd not be following the command to tell the truth in love. Mm. He'd be missing out on the biblical commands to be gentle and kind and compassionate to others as Jesus Christ has been kind and gentle and compassionate to us. Bible says when you look at the heart of Jesus it tells us that the defining character one of the things it wants us to kind of lodge in our minds is that Jesus was gentle and lowly he was meek in heart the bill that only sees black and white there's no middle ground his only logic is a straight line from personal sin to personal punishment Job's children must have sinned and that's why they're dead and Job must have sinned, that's why he's suffering. And so Bildad pleads with Job to repent. Verse five, if you seek God, he says, and plead with your mighty for mercy, if you are truly pure and upright, then God will surely restore you. Bildad goes on to, to, to draw on history and nature to teach the troubles and pains resort from sin. And he charges implicitly in verses 11 through 19 that that Job has forgotten God. That's why he's suffering. I mean, things don't grow where there is no water, he says in verse 11. They instead wither and die. Verse 13, such are the paths of all who forget God. Their hope shall perish. And he gets even more explicit at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 20, Bildad says, behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor accept or take the hand of evil doers. Job is obviously rejected. Look at all his laws. And God only does this to sinners, to the wicked. He won't reject a blameless man. And so, Job, stop all the nonsense and confess you are not a blameless man. Confess your sin and turn away from it so that God can fill your mouth with laughter again and fill your lips with shouting. You see the kind of simplistic, straightforward thinking the Eliphaz has, or the build that has. Only the guilty suffer like Job and like Job's children. And there is no room for the innocent suffering. It's the worldview that many believers have. You see somebody suffering Going through something intense And our first instinct is Sin There must be some sin in your life What have you done To have warranted this What do you need to repent of To get your life back on the right track I mean you see it even in the Bible In John chapter 9 Jesus passes by a blind man And his disciples immediately ask sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind that's their only explanation behind the cruel reality of someone being blind every day of their lives there has to be sin somewhere but Jesus responded in John chapter 9 verse 3 it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is suffering that is not the direct result of sin, but is suffering so that God's great works and God's great glory might be displayed in the midst of them. That's Job's suffering. That's Jesus's suffering. He never sinned, and yet he took on our sin and suffered for us, for our forgiveness, but ultimately to display God's great love and God's great glory. That's sometimes our suffering. Why we suffer not because of some sin in us, but to showcase God's great glory. It's why Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. That the glory of God might be manifest in Lazarus' life Or Lazarus' death Bildad doesn't see that All he senses is sin and Job's need to seek repentance But notice Job's response to Bildad's claims He has bold denials Job starts in chapter 9 Taking Bildad's advice that he needs to repent and seek out God By saying in essence, well how then? Tell me how a man might be right, might prove himself before God. I mean, you want me to go to God, tell me what I'm supposed to do to get back into his good favor. Do you want me to contend with him? Well, verse three, if I did that, I could not answer this great God one time and a thousand times. I mean, he is God and I am not. Joe goes on in verses four through 12. And to talk about, God's great power and activity in the world. Again, Job, notice, has not stopped believing in God. There is no sin of disbelief. He has not forgotten God as Bjornet has applied. But it seems God has forgotten him. He says in verse 11, He passes by me and I see Him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Verse 13 God, it seems, is angry at me and will not turn back his anger. But it's not because I've sinned against him. Notice how often Job professes his innocence. Verse 15, though I am in the right. Verse 17, he multiplies my wounds without cause. Verse 20, though I am in the right. Again in verse 20, though I am blameless. Verse 21, I am blameless. Now let's be honest. What happens in your hearts when you hear that kind of language? It's often a kind of immediate sentiment of buildad, isn't it? That Job is blind to his sin that he's here being prideful and boastful and that he's done something to account for all this misery and even if not he's sitting now by vehemently stating how blameless he is i mean we can almost demand self-condemnation can't we i mean we see it all over society some people demand that every person in the majority ethnic group own that he or she is a racist And they're deeply offended if the person has the nerve to push back and say, but I'm not a racist. I'm blameless, at least in that area. There's a kind of double damnation that comes their way. Not only are they supposedly guilty of the initial act, but maybe even more egregious, they insistently keep stating their innocence. You see it in churches. I mean, if someone leaves a church disgruntled, or dissatisfied, there can be a kind of presumption that someone did something to push them away, that the pastors or some of the members must have sinned in some way to send them away. Friends, I'm not trying to suggest that there's not sometimes guilt, sometimes justified sin and guilt in someone's life that is the cause to some demise or some outward action. But I am meaning to suggest rather strongly that sometimes is not all the time. All right. It is a problem to demand people to confess and repent of sin that they're not guilty of. It is a problem to demand people confess and repent of sin that they've long ago given to the Lord and he's forgiven them of. Amen. Come on. You kill a church like that. What Job is wrestling with here—you kill a friendship like that. What Job is wrestling with here is not unconfessed sin that requires repentance. What Job was wrestling with is undeserved suffering that requires reasoning. Mm. And so, in the rest of chapter nine and through chapter ten, Job continues to seek out God, asking why He's taking me through all this. Mm. In chapter ten, he asks in verse three, "Does it seem good to you to oppress?" And despise the work of your hands. Or well, verses 6 and 7. Why do you seek out and search for my sin and judge me as rebellious, even though you know that I am not guilty? Job acknowledges and praises God, understanding that his hands, God's hands, have shaped and fashioned him. He's got good doctrine of creation. He understands that God carefully crafted him and gave him life. But as he wonders, did you do all that meticulous work just to destroy me? Why do you keep coming after me? Verse 17, hunting me for no reason. Bringing fresh troops against me daily, it seems. A new cavalry to to condemn my body, my mind. And then in verses 18 through 22, he, he resorts to where we were last week. To questioning why God even allowed him to live If this is how life is going to be He asked in verse 20 Aren't my days few? Then please, cease, stop and leave me alone That I might find just a little cheer A little slice of happiness before I die What Job most needs is not repentance What he most wants is God's response God's nearness, God's activity for and not against him. He laments that he doesn't have it and he longs for death if he can't. We might all be tempted to keep telling Job to turn from sin. But Job, even if we don't love his language, is showing us what we need is to keep turning to God. Job here teaches us new language and new commands to deal with sufferers. Not just repent, but sometimes, maybe oftentimes, lament. The third and last lesson we learn in this big passage is in chapters 11 through 14, which we'll cover more briefly. And here we learn number three, that arrogant assumptions only deserve rebuke. They don't deliver any rest. We meet the last of the three friends, Zophar, in chapter 11. And like Bildad, he comes off incredibly strong. He says in chapter 11, verse 2, that Job is just full of talk. In verse 3, that he's just been babbling, mm, talking foolishness and nonsense. How like what your parents and grandparents used to tell you. There's no way you're right, Job. Verse 4, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. Now, Job never actually said this. And it seems in Zophar's eyes that Job was planning absolute purity and sinlessness, which Job has never claimed. He knows he's a sinner. He's just not aware of any particular, present, unconfessed sin in his life. In any case, Job's claim to be blameless and without fault is enough to to set Zophar off. He thinks Job is prideful just to make that claim. But look at Zophar's pride. Look at his arrogance. He says in verse 5, but oh, after all what you say, but what you're not, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Zophar claims to know exactly what God thinks of Job. If God would speak and reveal the secrets of his wisdom, which I know, (laughs) he'd prove you wrong and show that actually what you're experiencing is less than what you should get for your sin. The thing is, we know what God thinks of Job All right. We've been told In chapters 1 and 2 God calls Job his servant Who is blameless Who fears God Who turns away from evil Who God says I ain't got nobody like him But we see here How theological presumptions And arrogant assumptions Go hand in hand Zophar presumes That the theology he just knows To be true that we all know to be true at a base level, that no one is perfect, also means for for Zophar that no one can really be blameless either, can really be genuinely upright. At least they shouldn't claim to be so. And Zophar assumes that the theology that, that tells us that God exacts of us less than our guilt deserves, which is really true generally of all of us, right, for we all deserve hell at the first sin, God does exact less of us than we actually deserve. But Zophar assumes that that truth is to be applied to every situation, including Job's. And so then he assumes that he knows the mind of God toward Job and can assertively speak for God. But let God be God and every man a liar. Mm, Which is really what Job will go on to say. But so far knows nothing of the mind of God toward Job. He just assumes he knows and throws out some, some of the same lame, blanket prescriptions for Job's situation that his former friends have given. Repent of sin, God will restore you. He says in verse 14 if iniquity is in your hand, just put it far away. If you do, verses 16 through 19, you will forget your misery. Your life will be bright. And you will feel secure And none will make you afraid To which Job says baloney mm. He opens up chapter 12 Rebuking his friends Sarcastically mocking them in verse 2 Saying No doubt You are the people The only people in all the world With wisdom And when you die man the world be, They're going to be hurting because when you die All the wisdom in the world is going to be gone You fool, do you really think I'm inferior to you? Do you really think I am a fool and that you are the only wise people in all the world? Well, let me show up your supposed wisdom, which has not brought me any relief, not brought me any rest, and let me show you why it's not so wise after all, your little simple system of sin equaling suffering every time. For one, he says in verse five, it's easy for those who are at ease to look down on those who suffer misfortune. That's so true, isn't it? Or yeah. well, you be sitting up, sipping lemonade in your little beach chair. You'd be like, hey, I'd never respond like that. All of us say that when you in seasons of good. Mm. you in seasons of grace. What happens in seasons of grief? Be careful of what you say about what you never do or condemn too harshly those who are in those seasons. This book has so many little nuggets, I swear. Um, Yeah, Job says, it's easy for you, right? You you, you live a life good. You got all your kids. You got all your possessions, right? You got your health. It's easy for you to to speak and look down on me. But your theories all prove themselves wrong. He says in verse 6, I mean, robbers are at peace, And idolaters who carry their little gods in their hands and provoke God, they are secure. Well, here's the thing. You say that the wicked, the rebellious, deserve suffering and always get it. Well, robbers and idolaters are rebels of God. And yet, they have rest. That's the first crack in the armor of your little neat theological system. Mm -hmm. Of your little neat fit-in-the-pocket God. And here's the second crack in the arm. Look down at verses 13 and 14. God indeed has wisdom and might, counsel and understanding. He tears down and no one can stop him. We know that to be true. But look at those he tears down. And then look at verse 17 and on. He tears down counselors and judges, kings and priests, Elders and princes and great nations. I mean, not only do you say that the wicked always get punishment in this life, you say, your little system says, that the wise and the good always get rewards in this life. Well, throughout history, look at all the great and noble and righteous people whom God has stripped of things, whom God has brought down to nothing, not because of any sin of theirs, but well, because of his own wise counsel. You claim to know God, Job in essence says, but your God is too small. Your God is too tame. You think you can keep God on a leash, right? With these kind of abstract A equals B plus C all the time. Job continues into chapter 13. He says in chapter 13, verse three, that, that it is to his God a big God, a wild God, an untamed God, a sovereign God that he would speak to the almighty. As for you, you lie on God. Verse seven, you speak falsely, verse seven of chapter 13, you speak falsely for God and deceitfully for him, claiming to be wise. Verse five, Oh, that you would have shut your mouths your mouth shut in silence, and then you would be really wise. <laughs> but you keep on blowing hot air, really <laughs> talking theologically, but ain't saying nothing about the God you talk about. At least nothing right and true. Verse 10: Job says, God will rebuke these friends for trying to present. Notice what their, their error is. Why will God pre- rebuke these friends? Because they are trying to present a more pious, a more pristine, a more manageable God than the one who actually exists. Job asks, will not his majesty terrify you? Or are you gonna to try to define this king into so your neat little categories? We do that when we learn a little bit of theology, don't we, right? We, we put everything into our little theological grid. The, doing theology is absolutely necessary. Well, your theology, our theology must spring up from the Bible, not be imposed down upon the Bible. Right? When we let that theology spring up, you're like, God can do whatever he wants. All right. At whatever time, and I need to learn to trust him. That's what Job was learning. He's on a journey. He and his friends seem to have started at the same place of wisdom. Right, the same situation before all this suffering, right? It seems like Job might have agreed with them, but through this suffering, God is showing Job a deeper, bigger picture of who he really is. So, then Job says in verse 11, Your little maxims about God and how he operates don't hold up. Your supposed defenses for God, right? that's what he's trying to do, and you are kind of, Cutting Job down like, oh, Job, we got to defend God the way you're talking about him in his prayer. Goodness, that's, ooh, I don't like that. He says, your defenses for God are defenses of clay. These friends have supposedly guarded God's honor and spoken up for him while Job has spoken rashly and with rawness to him. Or Job has been so bold as to question God and to claim his blamelessness. They thought that they were standing up as examples of solid faith. But Job says, your faith is brittle. You've got a very small faith because you've got a very small God. But Job knows that God is big and majestic and powerful and even as big that God is. And even though God has seemingly used all his power against Job, notice again where Job is going. To this God who seemingly used all his power against them. He says in verse 13, All you friends, please shut up. Be silent and let me speak to him. Let me come into his presence and see what happens. Look at that wonderful and familiar saying in verse 15 Though he slay me, I will. Hope in him. Yet I will argue my way to his face. Even if this powerful God continues to seemingly work against me and he ends my life, it is worth going to him and hearing directly from him. In him alone do I trust. And what does Joe most want from God? Two things. Through that in verses 20 through 22. Two things that he's asking for God. Give me two things. Number one, verse 21 remove your hand from me. Stop treating me like a condemned sinner. And number two, verse 22 call out to me, speak to me, be present again. Job could have asked God for anything the restoration of his stuff, the restoration of his family. I mean, those are the kind of promises his friends held out. You know, all their little speeches, Job, if you just seek God, then your life would be restored, all your stuff would be restored. Their sights are too small. What Job most wants from God is God. That's what will bring Job most rest, most peace, most joy. Close fellowship with the Father again. Job feels cut off from him. Not by his own doing or his own sin But by God's doing And so God has to initiate Job says call out God Call out to me and I'll come Let me speak to you Deliver that access again Job's friends claim to know God and to speak for him But well, they held out God merely as the means to an end To something else for Job To family, to crops, to happiness For Job God is the end The gold, the prize, and yet he still doesn't sense it. So chapter fourteen ends with Job slumped in sorrow still, acknowledging in verses one through six that man's days are few and full of trouble, and yet holding on to hope in verses thirteen through fifteen that even if he died, that God would renew him and raise him up. He says in verse fourteen. That he would wait until his renewal Would come He's hoping even faintly He doesn't know the whole picture that we know He's hoping even faintly in a resurrection That death, if it comes If God kills him, it won't be the end look at verse 15 He says If I don't hear from you As I desire in this life Lord, if you remain silent Well, in the grave If you would call I would answer you. As you call up from the ground the work of your hands. It's amazing, isn't it? Job is showing a kind of deep faith in the Lord. I most want to hear God talk to me now, call out to me. But Job says, even if I die, God's call is so powerful that the man that he made from the dirt can rise up from the dirt. That God can call me out of the grave. Friends, we know that's one day what God will do. Right? That the trump shall resound. The Lord will descend. And with a great cry, all those who are asleep in the ground shall raise up to be with our Lord. Death is not the end. Job doesn't know everything, but he's hoping, trusting, somehow, Lord, raise me up. Bring me too much to yourself. but if res- resurrection doesn't come, That's, doesn't happen, there is no hope. And so, verses eighteen to twenty-two in this first round of speeches with Job, dejected, and depressed, and sorrowful, thinking of the the solitude and the pain and the mourning that awaits those who pass from this earth and waste away in the grave. You might ask yourself, how can he one minute be longing with hope for salvation, for resurrection, but the next be so sorrowful and gloomy? Because he's real. He's human. He doesn't feel like he needs to perform for people or for God. He's suffering, and that suffering has a wide range of emotions. Job foreshadows another sufferer who Also was not ashamed to be truly human And express human emotions The Lord Jesus Christ He too knew what it was to feel abandoned by God And he actually was abandoned by God He too knew what it felt like to be abandoned by friends He was abandoned by all his friends They didn't even come near He too used his words and his time To confound the supposed religion of the religious folks of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees who substituted pious language about God for personal knowledge of God and who thought that any suffering for any supposed religious person had to equate to that person being a fraud. Sorry, his suffering on the cross only garnered mocking from them. <laughs> he, he saved others. He can't even save himself. But Jesus withstood their mockery. Amen. And endured a cross of shame and suffering for us. He suffered unjustly for our sins, dying and rising again, so that we might know God and forever be reconciled to Him. And that we might have hope yes. real hope that even with the most intense suffering and even with death, that God has not forsaken us, but will resurrect us to be with Him forever. Amen. If you don't know the one that Job foreshadows, you must know him today before Job's trials come to you, before Job's long death comes to you. Because once you die without Christ, you will be raised up too, but not to endless happiness, but to an even worse experience than Job experience, to an eternal hell you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, turn from your sins. Put your trust in Christ alone to save you so that you might be able to say amazing, remarkable things like Job, that though he slay me, though he take away everything, though he almost kill me, though he slay me, I will trust him. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We can count on Christ. Yes. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we can counsel people better than Job's friends because we have a better and bigger picture of who God is and how he uses suffering not to punish us, but to rescue us and to work out his redemptive purposes in and through us. Suffering will come. Sufferers will need comfort. The only comfort comfort that brings lasting hope Is not mere flimsy theological words, but God himself. Let's be a people who long for and live for and love the Lord and live to bring the Lord Jesus Christ right into the pain of people. This is Jesus entered into our pain that we might be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Use it, we pray. Use it in our own hearts to cause us to patiently endure. Use it in our own lives as we minister to others.